Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you've not done so, to Matthew chapter 12, and we will be on page 817 in Matthew 12, verses 22 through 37. Matthew chapter 12, page 817 in the Black Bibles. As you all are turning there, I have a picture on the slide. Behind me is a gentleman, and I'm curious, does this face ring a bell? Anyone know who this is? Yeah? No? It's Ignaz Simmelweis. Is that helpful? Anybody know who he is now? Oh, yeah, Ignaz Simmelweis. Seriously, anybody ever heard of this guy? Well, you're about to find out all about Ignaz Simmelweis, if you did not know. This man is a 19th century Hungarian doctor. And as he was working in a hospital, one section of the hospital had um, some labor and deliveries and uh, moms would come and give birth to their children and sadly, they would die uh, at a very high rate. And then another section of a hospital where he worked, uh, there was not the same ratio of births and then deaths. And it wasn't during the childbirth, it was shortly after the baby was born, that the mom would get sick and get a fever and then die. And so he was trying to figure out why did this one hospital and this other place where he went have such different results. And uh, one observation was that one of them where the moms lived, there was uh, more midwives than there were doctors. And so maybe it was just that women were better than men, you know. And uh, because he was, you know, a man, he was like, no, that's probably not it, you know. And so uh, he kept thinking and trying to investigate what was the difference between these two different places and what was the factor that led to it. And so uh, he found a solution. He noticed something he didn't notice before. The, ho- the side of the hospital or the, the place where the women were dying, he noticed that the doctors that were there, it wasn't that they were men, it was that many of them were also working in the morgue and dealing with cadavers and dead people. And then they did not have sanitation like we do these days. So imagine a doctor dealing with a dead body and then going to deliver your baby. Any ladies like, sign me up for that? Well, no, that's going to sign you up for a good chance of dying. And so that's what he noticed. So he started implementing a plan, a strategy, and it was called hand washing. And sure enough, hand washing led to saving dozens and dozens of women. And he was right. It was the fact that they just didn't wash their hands after they were dealing with these dead bodies. And so, as you might imagine, if you discovered something incredible like this, what would you want to tell the rest of the world and tell the medical community and say, hey, guess what? We have discovered the problem with all of these moms dying. And so he told his colleagues and the medical community. And what do you think their response was? What? You're saying we're the problem? You think we're killing these women? How dare you make such a claim, Ignaz Simmelweis? And so here was this man trying to save lives and save even more lives by sharing the good news of how salvation can come just by simply washing hands. They rejected his claims. They were offended at his discovery, and he was admitted into an insane asylum. Two weeks later, after being admitted in the insane asylum, he died. 
and it took just a couple years afterwards. When Louis Pasteur discovered the theory of germs and small, invisible microorganisms to validate Ignaz Semmelweis's theory, just a little too late. Now, why might I tell you that story? Hopefully, it's quite obvious, because today in our sermon of Matthew's gospel, we're going to see that the biggest problem in our lives is not something that we can see. Like the germs on the doctor's fingers, so many of us are spreading a deadly disease, and it's something that's not so obvious. So what are you going to do when you hear an announcement of life-saving good news? Will you reject it like the medical community? Or will you receive it and save your life and many others? Let's read Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 22. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him. So that the man spoke and saw, and all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he, being Jesus, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings good for, forth good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be judged, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, I want us to see the problem we have, the solution of that problem, and what the fruit comes of accepting this solution. And if you want to look on the screen behind me, you'll see the outline of the message in question form. What do you think your greatest problem is? Are you for or against Jesus? 
And then, why did you say that? Why did you say the words that came out of your mouth? So let's start first with verses 22 to 24 and ask the question, what is our biggest problem? In this text, we want to first think about this man's problem and then apply it to ourselves. Look at verse 22. Then a demon-possessed, oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed him so that the man then could speak and see. And the people were amazed at this, as you and I would be if we saw this. What is this man's problem? Well, we could say, is he sick? Like physically sick? Is there something wrong with his eyes and his mouth? Or is it his oppression by an evil spirit? And the answer is, of course, yes. Both are true. He was blind and mute, but he was also oppressed by a demon. Our temptation as modern 21st century people is to read this prognosis and this description as primitive. Well, of course, the problem was something with his eyeballs. Physically, it was not a spiritual problem. You see, the ancient world, much to our needing to learn from them, understood that these physical ailments and these spiritual dilemmas were oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes one and the same. Meaning, every time you get sick, does that mean, oh, there's a demon in you. <laughs> let's go ask Pastor Phil to come over and let's perform an exorcism. No. So I'm hoping to not get 20 phone calls this week of, hey, I've got a cold, or hey, my kid just threw up, etc. Uh, that's not what we're suggesting. But what we are suggesting is that the relationship between these two realities is a lot closer than many of us in the 21st century modern world often believe. Spirits that are invisible can cause physical illness. And what we see in Scripture is not just a conversation revolving around an exorcism and the removing of an evil spirit, but we see a healing too. And the way this conversation goes is not a distinction between these two, but rather that Jesus is healing both. And if anything, the emphasis in this section as I read through it was on what? The healing of miraculous wonders or the exercising of an evil spirit. And here the emphasis is on the evil spirit. So when we understand who Jesus is, we're supposed to see him as a healer and a man who casts out evil. Which then brings us to our question. What's your biggest problem? And to put it simply, our biggest problem in the world is a powerful force that we cannot see. Even though we can see the fruits of that power in our lives and in the world around us, the biggest problem is something you cannot see. This way of viewing the world is not unique to Matthew or Jesus. This is rooted in the very first pages of the Bible, the first stories in Genesis chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 3, by the way, there's this snake that comes into the garden and starts talking? And immediately you're like, wow, that's the way the Bible starts, talking snakes. And we start thinking, is this fiction? Especially if you've never read the Bible before. I mean, I trust that some people come to our church. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not used to reading the Bible, that might throw us off. Like, okay, talking snake, first couple pages of the Bible. That's not normal, okay? Uh, the ancient authors, they did not think snakes talked. 
There's not a whole slew of animals that talk through the Bible. There's like one other instance, and it's a donkey. Other than that, it's not like Chronicles of Narnia, and you've got talking lions and whatever else going on throughout the pages of Scripture. There's various reasons that we can explain why there was a talking snake, but one thing that I'm sure many of you haven't thought about, because we were doing an Old Testament class recently, and we were considering this point, is that on day six of creation, animals were first given to fill the land, and then humans. And if you keep reading in Genesis chapter one, the humans were supposed to rule and have dominion over all of the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and over all of creation. What was the order? Animals, then humans. But you see, what happens in chapter three is a reverse of that order. Instead of humans ruling over animals, animals are deceiving and ruling over humans. It's a reverse of the created order, of God's call for human beings to be made in God's image and rule and have dominion over the beasts of the field. It's also Genesis chapter 2. They're to work and protect the garden. And so in slithers this deceiver, which the later scriptures will call the devil, the ancient serpent that is the devil. That's from Revelation chapter 12. He is the father of lies, and his primary power is deception. And how did they do at protecting the garden from this deception and this evil? Not so well, right? They gave in to the temptation. They believed a lie, even though God had clearly spoken previously. But that's only half the problem. You see, that's outside forces of evil that slither in to your garden. And that's a problem. That's a real problem. You may not see it. Typically, we don't see talking snakes. Like I said, that's not norm throughout the scriptures. As Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the powers and principalities and the rulers. And that language is all about invisible powers of darkness. That is our main battle. But it's not the only battle. Because the very next story in Genesis chapter 4 is the language of two brothers. And again, the younger and the older we have a little bit of a relationship. Who was born first? Cain, and then Abel. And Abel had a better offering to give to God, and that made Cain angry. And God spoke to Cain, and he said to Cain, listen, sin is crouching at the door, and it wants to have you, desire you, and take over you. Picture the image. It's personified language. It's thinking about sin as a personified animal, like a lion or a tiger, that's ready to pounce and Latch on to Cain. He says, you must rule over it. Does that sound familiar? You must rule over this animal and not let it seize you and take you. And so what we find is that he did not. He killed his brother. If you've gotten that far, chapter 4 in the Bible, I'd encourage you to read and see that that's connecting the story of Genesis 3 to the story of Genesis 4 because the problem outside that slithers in the forces of evil and darkness that are on the outside are actually right in here, in our heart. Because the biggest problem in all of our lives is both the forces of evil on the outside, but then also the evil on the inside. The sin that crouches and wants to rule and have you. And all of us, as we understand the scripture to teach, have been ruled over by that sin. That there is an invisible reality of evil that we have been mastered by, enslaved by. In one sense, we could say then, our biggest problem is not just sin and evil, it's God. 
because this puts us at odds with the God who is righteous and just and holy and who hates sin and will bring forth justice on all evil. Do you see what I mean by that? Not that God is this tyrant monster. It's because he so precisely loves us, because he loves righteousness and fairness and justice, that there becomes a divine dilemma. His love for you and all of creation is at odds with his justice and hatred towards sin. And if that sin is mastering and ruling all of us, what is God going to do? How is he going to get rid of evil if evil is in all of us? Fast forward the story in the Bible. Let's just wipe out everyone in the whole earth because of how wicked and evil they are. Oh, my heart just breaks, God says, because I see the wickedness of man. And so let's start over with one new family. That's what we need. Let's just start over with one righteous family. Then, then everything will be better. God starts over. The first day off of that boat, Noah falls into sin, gets drunk, and naked. In the same way that Adam fell and he was naked and ashamed, so was Noah, fallen on the ground in a drunken stupor after grabbing too many fruits from that vine. And his naked shame shows that there is a continual problem. It's called a human problem. God cannot get rid of evil without getting rid of all of us. And he promised he would never do that. Therefore, the divine dilemma is getting even more of a problem. How will God be both righteous and just, but then also loving and merciful to keep his promise to save his people? Enter in very quickly as you fast forward from Genesis chapter 9 all the way to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus of Nazareth enters into the story of human history. Fully man, fully empowered by God's Spirit, God in flesh, and he heals the physical ailments, the spiritual problems with authority over both celestial and terrestrial beings, coming for both problems that you can see with your eyes and those that you can't see. And just like the medical community that rejected the good news of Ignaz Simmelweis' hand-washing strategy, so too the free message of salvation through Christ's death, burial, resurrection, and reign and rule at the Father's right hand has been rejected by scores of people when they hear that they were part of the problem. The first step to understanding how healing will come to the world is when you realize, I too need to wash my hands because they are dirty. Too many people have rejected this life-saving, world-changing message of hope and freedom. So what are you going to do? That brings us to our second question. Are you for him or are you against him? In our text, you see that several are amazed and they think, maybe he's the son of David. Whereas others, namely the Pharisees, said this man casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. Let's consider for a moment those two reactions. As I said last week, chapters 11 and 12, if you were to sum it up, what's the theme that brings all these stories in chapters 11 and 12 together? The responses to Jesus. So yet again, here we have a response. Amazement, maybe he's the son of David. Rejection, oh no. 
He's working by the power of Beelzebul. Let's start with the first one. Why would they say, after seeing a man who was mute and blind, healed and oppressed by a demon, wow, maybe he's the son of David? Like, why wouldn't they say, maybe he's God? <laughs> like, why the son of David? Have you thought through that? Well, hopefully you were listening earlier in the service. We read through a scripture passage in 1 Samuel chapter 16. After David was anointed with the Holy Spirit, he then healed Saul's evil spirit by playing a lyre or a harp. He cast out an evil spirit. But furthermore, David was known as the great victory king, the conquering king, who fought the battles for the people of Israel when they weren't willing to fight them themselves. Don't you love that song that Adam and Nathaniel wrote for us, Embassy Church? There was a first David who came and he crushed the Philistine who wore a snakeskin armor. But then there came a greater David who crushed the serpent's head. Jesus, come worship this king. He is the son of David, the greater David, who cast out evil spirits, not with a harp, but with a word. That was why that other song we sang, beautifully a cappella, well done, Embassy Church. No, seriously, I enjoyed it a lot. A mighty fortress is our God, is a meditation on the battle between the unseen realm of the invisible forces of evil. That prince of darkness grim, one little word shall fell him. Gloriously helpful meditation for us earlier in our singing to help understand why Jesus, the one who would fight our victories, fight and bring victory to us, fight our battles, is the greater David, not just against Goliath, but against Satan himself. It's by far the main thing that's going on in this passage. Jesus is teaching us that he is going to fight a strong man. He's going to win. He's going to plunder him, and that will mean salvation for all of us. But some think he's doing this by the power of Beelzebul. What does that mean? Well, nobody really agrees on what it means, but we do have a beautiful picture. If you want to look at this, this is an artist's rendering of Beelzebul. Now, why is it a bug? Well, that's because Beelzebul, one of the theories, is that his name means literally Lord of the Flies or God of the Flies. And so there you got skull and crossbones to just make it all the more menacing if it's not already scary enough. And so there is a picture for you to get stuck in your mind. This, this is obviously not Beelzebul, literally, but rather a representation of the dark evil force of what our text says, the prince of demons. But really, if you keep reading our text, you'll notice that Jesus interchanges Beelzebul with Satan, which is the word for the accuser. And you can read about the accuser all throughout the Old Testament, and today's not the day to do a whole in-depth study on Satan and evil devils and whatever else. But the phrase Satan is actually the Satan. It's ho-satan in the original language, and we didn't really get a translation of it. We just got that transliteration where it's just Satan, and it just means the accuser. That would be a translation of the word satan. So all throughout the Old and New Testaments, you have a story of powers of evil. Think Job chapter 1, and the man that goes up and accuses Job, the accuser of the brethren, 
some scriptures will say as they describe him. These people, as you notice, are not denying that Jesus, the Pharisees are not denying that Jesus has power to save and heal. When you and I read this and think, there was a man who walked on the earth and he helped heal a blind man and a mute man. We'd be like, nah, I don't think that was true. That's not what they're doing. They're not denying the miracle. They're not saying, well, no, 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 that never happened. The miracle's just kind of assumed. It's like, well, of course, it's obvious. But what they are denying is the power by which he did it. Now, why would they do that? First and foremost, it's because Jesus is presenting the new way to be the nation of Israel. Pharisees are Israelites. This is kind of like an internal debate and fight amongst Jesus and these Pharisaical community. They believe they have the right way of being the nation of Israel, and Jesus is rejecting that way and says, you guys are blind guides. You're like leading each other into a pit because you have no idea where you're going. The irony behind this story is that the blind people is not the blind man with the demon possession. It's the Pharisees that are denying Jesus' power and the authority by which he heals with that power. So Jesus responds to these men and says, listen, your logic is about as illogical as it could possibly be. You know, oftentimes when something happens with Jesus and the Pharisees, he's like so cryptic and cool and you're like, oh man, he like answered a question with a question. And you're like, what's he trying to say? And it's, this is just like, that's dumb. <laughs> like this makes no sense. Just read it. Listen, I'm sure you'll see the same thing. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid to waste. And no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do you cast, who do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But, it is by the spirit, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Let's just pause there and make sure you follow along what he's saying there. This is just simple logic. That if Jesus is casting out a demon by the power of the prince of demons, that seems to be a little counterproductive. It'd be like saying, hey, let's go build this house across the street. And then, by the way, architects, plan one is to build it, and then next plan is to destroy it. Like, that makes no sense. Why would you do that? It's just a waste of time and energy and power and resources. And so, therefore, Jesus is showing that if you're a divided house, if you're a divided kingdom, then you're going to fall apart which I think has wonderful little nuggets of application for any of you. Is your house divided? Is your marriage unified? Is this church divided? In any sense, there's certainly little takeaways of why the importance of unity in the sake of a kingdom or a community or a church or a family is so important and central to its well-being and success. And so Jesus shows that if you're divided in these particular ways, well, then you're not going to stand. You're going to fall. So it makes no sense to say that I'm doing this by the power of Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And then he says, you have people in your community that do exorcisms. Did you notice that? He says in verse 27, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? And he doesn't mean literally like your children. It means more like your disciples. If you Pharisees have exorcism, which, by the way, if you read and do some history and some studying on this topic of exorcisms, you'll find that exorcisms were a little bit more common than they would be today. Not to say that they don't still happen today. I've mentioned in the past, there's been interesting observations I've made in my life where it seemed like there was demon possession and different things going on, and 
I'm a firm believer that it still exists, even if we deny it in various different ways. But the point is this. If they're casting out demons, then who is that by? And so that's why he asked the question, well, who do your sons cast them out? And so basically, their exorcisms will kind of prove themselves. Therefore, they will be your judges as to what's really true. And then he says, look, if I have done this by the Spirit of God and cast out demons, then you know for sure that the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so we pick it up there in verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. This image of a strong man is obviously talking, I think, about Satan and about the devil and these evil forces. There's a strong man. There's a strong, powerful force. First Peter is going to say that the devil roars around like a lion seeking to devour and destroy. So there's a strong man. There's 1 Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 4 will say, the God of this age has blinded the minds of all the unbelieving people in the world. So there's a blinding spiritual darkness that many people live in. And he ties them up. Jesus ties up and takes the plunder from this strong man. In other words, in this section of Matthew chapter 12, you've got several different statements where Jesus is greater than. Jesus is greater than the temple we saw earlier in chapter 12. Jesus is greater than David we've already considered. Next week we'll see, Lord willing, that Jesus is greater than Noah and greater than Solomon. Here in this text, we see that Jesus is greater than even Satan himself. If there's one simple little takeaway, it's that Jesus is stronger than even the strongest, most powerful force that you could imagine, and he's going to tie up that strong man, and he's going to plunder him. Plunder him with what? Like, what does Satan have that Jesus would want to take from him? Well, he's going to take people who have been enslaved by the lies of the devil. And that's why he asks, are you for him? Are you for Jesus? Or are you against him? And that's our question for this point of the message. Are you for him or are you against him? If you don't have a good reason to be for him, let me give you one. The way this text ends is often one of the most controversial, debated, hard sayings of Jesus that people stumble and trip over. And let me just suggest it's really quite straightforward and simple. And I don't mean that to be arrogant or proud. I mean, it's just one of those things. Just read it in context and you'll find that this whole blasphemy of the spirit, sin that God won't forgive, is just pretty simple. So let's read. Verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. But the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. So why should you be with Jesus and come to him? Well, he is extremely forgiving. What most people, I think, miss as they read this text is, oh no, what's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I want to make sure I don't do that because then Jesus will never forgive me. And then they freak out. If that's you, by the way, if you've ever thought that, let me reassure you right now, you have not committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It's like 100% chance. If you are worried now or been worried in the past, that is fruit 
that you have not committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, why do I say that so confidently and reassuredly? Because blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is about rejecting the work of God through the work of the Spirit in this context. These people see the Holy Spirit working powerfully through Jesus, and they say, that's Satan. They have hard hearts. They do not want forgiveness. They do not care about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That's what they're promoting. If you're that kind of person, you're not worried about whether or not you've committed this sin. That's you. That's just the way you want to be. You're not concerned about committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit because that's the the very nature of who you are. The way your heart is. People who care about that show, oh, I care about being forgiven by God. That must be God's spirit in you in and of itself. Who cares about being forgiven by God except somebody who's been touched by the spirit of God? Do you get the logic? It's, It's quite straightforward and simple that way. On top of that, it seems as if every time I've heard this text taught, there seems to be a missing, the broader, more beautiful and glorious point about Jesus. The Son of Man will forgive every sin and blasphemy. How many times have you heard this text preached and they just shouted from the rooftop, every sin will be forgiven. Every sin. The only reason he talks about a sin that's not forgiven is because the only way to not be forgiven is to not want forgiveness. If you're not following, hear this quotation from one scholar. He says it very well and illustrates it beautifully. Jesus is warning against looking at the work of the Spirit and declaring that it must be the devil's doing. So, if you do that, it's not that you've done some act or said some words that you can't be forgiven from. It's that you can't be if you think that way. You have, by believing and saying these ideas, and for a perpetual state, by the way, if I add a little parenthesis, because you're cutting yourself off from the very channel for which forgiveness could come from. Once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water in the world is poisoned, you have now condemned yourself to die of thirst. Isn't that a beautiful image to try and think about what Jesus is saying? There's life-giving water to rescue you from thirst and death. It's available through Jesus Christ, the living water that will never run out. He will forgive all sins. Last night's sins, last week's sins, last year's sins. He knows your future sins. He'll forgive tomorrow's sins. Every sin will be forgiven. Good news, amen, hallelujah, awesome, yes. Okay, then let's receive that part of it and realize that if you don't want that forgiveness, then that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That you see the beauty and majesty of the glorious Son of God doing the work of salvation. You're like, yeah, that's Satan. What? That's the point. So are you for him or against him? Do you see that if sin is our biggest problem, both inside our hearts and the force of evil outside of the world, and that therefore we've got a problem with God, but that God has solved this problem gloriously by sending Jesus and then giving us his spirit to cleanse and change and forgive our hearts. Which brings us to our last point. Why did you say that? The reason I ask it that way is because that's what the text actually says. That's the question 
Look at verse 34. How can you speak good? Why did you say that? How do you speak good words if you have evil hearts? Now, let's not disconnect these two sections. I think very much he's talking about you have just committed evil blasphemy. You brood of vipers. You are the serpent that are deceiving people. I mean, it's quite an indictment. Don't miss the harshness of Jesus' critique and rebuke of these blind guides. Jesus is telling them that it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. Therefore, they are showing their heart by denying Jesus' works of the, the Holy Spirit through him. And that's the relationship between that section on speech and the previous section on casting out evil spirits. So the application for us should be, if our greatest problem is the sin within us and the sin outside of us, but the good news is that Jesus has come and he has tied up the strong man and he's provided a way of forgiveness and he will, the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, is right now the Son of Man seated and reigning and he has all authority, he has all power and he will forgive all of your sins. Then how does that change and transform us by the Holy Spirit? And this text doesn't tell us explicitly, but it points to the idea that it is God's Spirit. There are not external strategies to deal with your internal heart problem. This is so incredibly crucial for all discipleship, all parenting, all efforts to have your spiritual life and general character improved. You cannot change your heart. You cannot change your disciples' heart that you're trying to encourage in the faith. You cannot change your children's heart. It is only by the Spirit of God that we can be changed and transformed. I hope that as you read this text and you see this flow of Scripture and the language here about, well, we only speak what comes out of the flow of our hearts. And therefore, when we speak, we shouldn't be talking and be like, well, I didn't mean that. Now, there might be rare occasions. I want to put the little asterisk caveat, little footnote, say, yes, there might be rare occasions. But, you know, that's not what I meant to say. Like, that was just like a little brain thing. Like, I did not have that in my heart. Like, that does happen. But so often, you and I get tired and grumpy and grouchy. We didn't eat enough. We didn't sleep enough. We're a little hangry. And we say things that we shouldn't have. And we're like, oh, it, it, that's not me. That's just because I was hungry. That was you. That was in there. It's just the circumstances of those difficult challenges brought out what was already there. Think of it like this water bottle. Right now, as it's sitting more still and flat, like on a table or on my hand, if there was a bunch of dirt, it would just settle down to the bottom, and many of you wouldn't even see it. But if I start shaking it up, nice, clear, white water would look all nasty and filthy. This is what Jesus is saying. Picture that in your mind. It's always been there, sitting down at the bottom of the bottle. But then something happened, and it created an atmosphere, and it came out. So how will we be a transformed community to bring hope and healing and salvation to the world? It would be to come to Jesus, to receive him and his forgiveness, and let that message of grace transform our hearts. So at this point, as we close this message out, I want to make sure it's crystal clear in all of our minds how change actually happens. 
This text doesn't tell us, but it's pointing the way by telling us it is by the work of the Spirit. But if we read later in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, it's going to say that as we behold the glory of the face of God in the person of Christ, we then are transformed from one degree of glory to another. Have you ever been to church or read a Christian book or read your Bible or had a very helpful spiritual conversation with somebody and you felt the sense of like God's presence? You've sensed his spirit. You sensed admiration and love for the Savior in a new way, in a fresh way, and it stirred up your heart toward love and good deeds. And it wasn't as if somebody had to tell you, okay, now you need to change your language. Talk better. And so I took three steps down from my counseling session, and it said, all right, step one, repeat positive words to myself every day. Step two, and you see what I mean? Like you could just start going through external strategies to try and change the internal heart behavior. The Bible says that as you behold the glory of God in the face of Christ and know that no matter how bad the dirt at the bottom of the bottle is, no matter how sick with sin the heart is, Jesus will forgive every sin. And that gloriously good news, that amazing grace washes over sinful hearts. How about that assurance of pardon that was read earlier in the service as we confessed our sins together and thought, man, out of the overflow of our hearts, that's what defiles us and leads to all kinds of things, theft, sexual immorality, adultery. That's where that came from. And then Carl read for us, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and he is just. He will forgive us of our sins and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness by being honest about the problem in here, by receiving the forgiveness, we can behold the Savior, be transformed, and have new hearts. So the bad news for many of us that live in an instant world of instant gratification and want it now is that this is going to take a lifetime. This transforming process needs to be done in community, and it will take a lifetime of slow, gradual, Daily pursuit of beholding the Savior together. Reminding each other of God's amazing grace. When the voice of the serpent seems louder than the voice of the Savior and his love for you, we need each other to speak truth into each other's lives. And we need to say, listen, if you're not with me, then you're against me. This is serious business in terms of our fighting for faith every day as we battle against unbelief, and the doubts, and the lies, and those forces. And all of you should know, well aware, oh, they're there. They're in here, and they're coming. We're just like, where did that come from? And that's why we need one another every single day. So that transformation process happens as we behold the glory of God. We're transformed, and there's a lot of ways we can encourage each other in the very practical, nitty-gritty, everyday things of life. And that's what we want to do throughout the week. But that's the main big idea. We can be transformed. God's spirit does, in fact, transform lives. So let's receive it. Let's come to him every day, every week, and do it for the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for the gift of salvation and the power of the Holy Spirit. The power that was displayed through the life of Jesus and then the power that raised Jesus from the dead that is now in us. 
God, I thank you that we have untapped power. We have at our disposal in the work, in the message of the Bible and in the Scriptures, all that we need for godliness, all that we need in God's Spirit to guide slowly day by day. So we want to just give you thanks now. We want to thank you for this word and this message of hope that our biggest and greatest problems have been resolved already now. Praise God. We thank you, God, for this good news. And we just ask now that your spirit would, in fact, empower and guide and lead and sanctify us to greater righteousness and holy living and community together and that you, God, would be glorified through that. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.